0: And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temen.
1: Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, August 4th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the Postal Service is told to tighten up procedures for shipping urns full of human ashes. Plus, the Federal Laboratory Consortium revamps its public view of technology transfer. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, tired of hearing about cybersecurity? Well, tough. It's about to get much more rampant. That's because the Federal Acquisition Regulations Council, the FAR Council, is reviewing a dozen proposals to expand cybersecurity requirements across federal procurement. Federal News Network's executive editor, Jason Miller, joins me now with more on this influx of cyber regulations. And Jason, we know cybersecurity is important. Why so many new regulations needed?
2: Tom, there's a combination of reasons why. And, and many of them are obvious. We have an executive order. We have Congress who's been very involved around cybersecurity, supply chain laws and, and other things. And of course, Tom, you can't throw a brick against the wall without hitting a zero trust strategy somewhere. All of this is leading into, hey, part of those efforts require changes to procurement. And I think this is why we're seeing so many and, and so many focus areas on cybersecurity. Now, Jeff Kosis is the General Services Administration's Senior Procurement Executive. He says in his 20 plus year career in federal procurement, he's never seen as many FAR proposals on one single topic. kosis says it's a signal of how important Congress and the Biden administration sees cybersecurity.
3: he specifically mentioned uh, secure software and incident reporting. Secure software, uh, both of those Actually, come out of the recent executive order on uh, the nation's cybersecurity infrastructure, the secure software. It uh, hopefully you all have seen the recent uh, form that CISA issued. The basic requirement comes down to software producers are going to be required to attest that they have followed secure development practices. CISA drafted and posted for comment a common form basically outline what they will be looking for in that attestation. And that attestation itself is going to become the basis of the FAR case, uh, which will follow on. Incident reporting. The incident reporting is really trying to uh, put focus uh, on the core ideas of uh, prevent, detect, assess, remediate.
2: Again, Jeff Kosas, the GSA Senior Procurement Executive, talking about the, all the cyber rules, more than a dozen in the federal acquisition regulations that they're starting to look at. He was speaking yesterday at the GSA, uh, what they call the IT VMO, Vendor Management Office event that uh, I attended. Tom, there's other rules out there, too, that he didn't mention, like standardizing cybersecurity requirements or unclassified information systems, the implementation of the Federal Acquisition Security Council, or FASC, exclusion orders. And of course, Tom, the one we've talked a lot about, prohibition on contracting with entities using certain telecommunications and video surveillance equipment, commonly known as the Huawei Z provisions that Congress put out there.
1: There's got to be a class deviation in there somewhere, Jason, one of my favorite words. But more seriously is there going to be a new place for all of these regulations on cyber? Is there going to be a cyber section 99, part 99 of the FAR? Where are they?
2: Oh, Tom, yes, there is. And it's coming. So maybe first, as some of these come come out, you're going to get them in, in certain places. But that's another big change that agencies need to re- really prepare for. Again, GSA's COSA says cyber has grown so much that it actually needs its own place in the federal acquisition regulations.
3: We have taken the view that this is such a big emerging area and – Cybersecurity is not the same as IT. So we've proposed creating a new part of the FAR far Part 40 as the home for all of the cybersecurity requirements. We think it cannot be confused with our pure IT requirements. Cybersecurity is everything everywhere and it needs its own home.
2: Something to follow. FAR Part 40. Jeff Coase is talking about it. Now, this uh, new FAR part will provide contracting officers with a single consolidated location in the FAR for cybersecurity and supply chain risk management requirements. So, this is very specific around supply chain risk management. Now, Tom, in September of last year, the FAR staff began writing the draft rule. It's expected actually to be out next Wednesday. Now, we'll see if it actually happens next Wednesday, but that's the, that was their goal.
1: Got it. And, of course, Far changes are really rulemaking actions. So, when can we maybe expect to see any of this?
2: That is the most difficult thing to predict because of how long they can take. Now, Tom, we know the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, the CMMC, has been going on for four or five years now, it feels like. And that's potentially in its home stretch. Some are proposed, some are in the final rulemaking stages. It could be a month, it could be six months, it could be more, who knows? Kosa says the proposal for threat hunting, as an example, is actually in the later stages of rulemaking at OIRA uh, over at OMB. He said others like the exclusions for Chinese telecom products or the Kaspersky software prohibition or even the ByteDance slash TikTok came out uh, obviously much more quickly.
3: Watch in the near term for a rule standing up the authority of the Federal Acquisition Security Council to issue uh, exclusions. It's an interim rule that's uh, pretty close to uh, clearing that uh, process I just mentioned there. And last uh, case on exclusions that's starting to move, in the 2023 NDAA, Congress passed a limitation on certain semiconductors. So watch for that also as part of that cybersecurity family of cases. More rules than anybody ever wanted.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and there's Jeff Kosas, always with command of knowledge of all of these things. I've always been impressed by how much he can command it and talk about it in bullet points. And there's some other non-rulemaking cyber stuff going on at GSA, Jason. What's going on there?
2: One of the big things that I think agencies and and really GSA is starting to focus on is – the S-bomb, the Software Bill of Materials, something we've heard a lot about over the last uh, year or so. You heard uh, Jeff Kosis mention a FAR rule. But even beyond the rule itself, GSA is really starting to look at this and, and how it could work. Sonny Hashmi is the commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service at GSA. He says GSA is spending a lifetime reviewing and managing its supply chain to guard against real and potential threats. He says adversaries have figured out that the U.S. supply chains are vulnerable to influence, to attack, and to infiltrate
4: this is an active thing that's happening every day. This is not a hypothetical that we're living in. One day this might happen. This is happening every day. And so whether the rule goes in this way or that way, whether the disclosure requirement is this versus that, those are just details. But I, I want to make it very clear. The future of public service, the future of government relies on digital as a foundational pillar. It's more important than real estate now. It's more important than even, like in some cases, getting the technology foundation right is going to be a foundational element for getting any government mission delivered. And in order to do so, there is going to be a higher expectation between us and you on how we manage the cybersecurity element together. That is going to require more disclosure, more transparency. That is going to require a higher level of trust that we have in you that you have with your supply chain. So it's not enough to say, well, we don't know that our subcontractor was compromised this way. We're going to have an expectation of you to know your risk in your entire supply chain, where you're sourcing parts from, where you're sourcing code from, who your subcontractors are, who's on their boards. This is the life we're walking into.
2: Again, Sonny Hashmi, the Commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service. Now, he says it's important to further the partnership and collaboration with industry, with their industry partners, about what each party is seeing. I think this is what he's getting to. And this is why something like the SBOM, the Software Bill of Materials, is really going to be a big adjustment for both government and industry, because it's a much, much big, different approach to managing
4: software. We're obviously working very closely with CESA to, and NIST to develop the standards, to develop the right templates, to make sure that the Data we get back is machine-readable, so you can actually make some decisions on it. Because my biggest fear with software material is like implementation through policy is going to lead to a bunch of PDF documents sitting in a contract file somewhere, which is not going to make anything better. So we need to make sure that the data comes in consistently. It comes in a central repository, machine-readable. That requires creating taxonomies. That's where we're working with NIST on. There's some pilots going on in Army Research Lab. There's a pilot going on in Department of Energy. We're tapped into those two to see what that, what that actually means and how that translates. But it's probably the earliest conceptual thing in the entire scope of uh, cybersecurity-related rulemaking that's going on.
2: And it's also the one that's causing the most stress for a lot of people in the vendor community because there's a lot of unknowns. No one's really doing this S-bomb well if you will or even has come come out in front so i think you're going to see a lot of discussion about this and that's why i think the the far rules going back to the beginning with jeff kosis is that's the one that's probably going to take a, quite a while to get through sure. and you know the SIS's initial okay what does the form at least look like let's start there right
1: and a big issue with s bombs is simply that they take so many different formats and how do you get s bombs for open source components and it really can spread out pretty wide
2: And this is an area of cybersecurity that because it's so brand new in many ways, there's more answers, more questions than answers right now. So uh, again, the fact that 12 FAR cases. I think that's probably just the beginning. And the fact is FAR Part 40 is coming soon, Tom. You and I will, we know 16, we know 15, we know 12, we know eight. Now we'll we'll know 40.
1: Far out. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the Federal Laboratory Consortium revamps its public view of technology transfer. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Countless new technologies have developed under federal funding, much of it under the auspices of federal laboratories. To showcase some of these developments and the technology transfer process, the Federal Laboratory Consortium has updated its online presence, known as Lab Tech in Your Life. We get more now from the Deputy Director of the Technology Partnerships Office at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, Derek Parks. Mr. Parks, good to have you with us. Good
5: morning. How are you doing?
1: All right. And you also work a lot on the Federal Laboratory Consortium. Just give us an update. What is the FLC for people that may not know? And there's quite a number of members, aren't there?
5: Yes. So the Federal Laboratory Consortium also known as the FLC it's a nationwide network of over 300 federal labs and research centers uh, that represent are represented from 23 federal agencies and the group works together to move innovative technologies that are developed throughout the federal lab networks uh, from the lab space to the marketplace
1: All right and the online presence then is what for the public to see what's going on for the consortium itself to keep track I mean what do you how do you make sure you' Everyone knows what's going on.
5: Yeah. So the the consortium itself uh, was developed with three different mission principles. So we want to promote federal tech transfer. Uh, we want to educate the tech transfer community within the federal agencies and also facilitate uh, the transfer of technologies from the lab to the marketplace. So in this respect, what we've done is created something new uh, on the FLC website, which is called Lab Tech in Your Life. And it's uh, a really unique way to kind of educate the public on What different technologies are in and around them that they really may not know about? These are kind of hidden technologies uh, that you see every day, but you have no sense uh, that they were there or developed by federal laboratories in the first place. So it's pretty cool.
1: And before we get into some of those, just briefly describe the technology transfer process itself, because it's a highly developed activity. It's got its own acronyms and its own set of communities of practice, really, that are devoted to technology transfer.
5: Definitely. Uh, Technology transfer, I will say, is even kind of a hidden component of uh, federal life within the federal community itself, let alone in the public. So, Back in 1986, the Federal Technology Transfer Act was passed uh, in Congress, and that also gave the provisions for the creation of this group, uh, the Federal Laboratory Consortium. But what the the Federal Technology Transfer Act really said was, we want to, as the the United States of America, make the most use of all of these research and development dollars that are going into uh, R&D every year, and make sure that that, uh, at this point, it's over 150 billion that's being invested in R&D. We want to make sure that those technologies are used, first of all, for the mission purpose. That's clear. But secondly, if there are dual use purposes, uh, in the commercial sphere or some technologies that just don't make it into mission applications, that's a, a nature of research and development. Not everything makes it directly into its uh, intended application. Congress was saying we want to maximize those research and development dollars and make sure that the federal labs have the ability to actually transfer those technologies out of federal laboratories and into the commercial sphere where they can be exploited by U.S. companies to actually make money. And one of the key ways that we do that is through the patent process. So our colleagues over at the USPTO, um, we work with them very closely to get patents on the most promising technologies that we have. And that allows us to put those technologies out on the marketplace and say, here, we have something for you uh, industry that has been invested in considerably in the basic research front. It's been proven. We have something that is really ready for you to adopt and turn into a commercial product. On top of that, we've de-risked this investment by putting a patent on it. So we know that we can license this to you and you have the security to say to your investors, look, we own this for a period of 20 years. This technology will be first to market. We'll be able to uh, exploit this fully and there's no worries. So it really is a, a very nice process that it isn't usually associated with the federal government. It's more of a private sector uh, a process, but we have the capability of doing that as well within the federal government.
1: All right, we're speaking with Derek Parks. He's deputy director of Technology Partnerships Office at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration NOAA. He's also chairman of the Promote Committee of the Federal Lab Consortium, the FLC, and this showcase is entitled House and Airport, which is kind of an odd conglomeration, featuring 86 technologies from nine agencies. What's in there?
5: Well, so, yeah, you say it's odd, and it is at this point. It's kind of like this weird amalgamation why we're doing home and airport. But what we're trying to do is
1: actually build
5: a full virtual city. So what the uh, the visitor to the website can do is actually enter into a home at this point and go from room to room and look around click on a little icon uh, for certain things and see what the federal technology is that's underlying whatever it is that they're looking at. So, for example, in the home, you might click on a a milk carton, for example, and learn that that's lactose-free milk and the the lactose-free uh, capability was actually developed by the Agricultural Research Service. They're like, oh, well, that's kind of cool. Likewise, you can look at uh, something like food labels on the back of uh, of all of your food containers and say, well, where did those come from? The National Institutes of Standards and Technology actually developed that that schema and uh, promulgated that throughout industry. So that's another, uh, another great success story. And then you look at things that are even a little bit deeper that you may not have understood were federal technologies like your, your cell phone camera, your cell phone itself, or you know the, the fancy camera that you have sitting next to your desk. Those technologies contain something called a CMOS sensor, which is prevalent throughout the, the uh, photography industry. So it's uh, a technology that was developed by NASA in the first place, and really pretty cool. But who knew this? <laughs> you know, everybody probably thought, "Oh, that was Nikon or Canon that developed that, but nope, that was NASA. And likewise with the cell phone, you know, we walk around with these things every day, but there's federal technology that developed the cell phone in the first place that was developed by the uh, Department of Defense, the Army, and transferred to a company that was eventually bought out by Blackberry. Uh, everybody knows about Blackberries, but they probably don't know the company that sure. uh, originally undertook the technology. So very cool. Um, So the goal is really that we want to have a complete city. And so you've got your house right now and you've got an airport, uh, but we're going to continue to build components of this so that you can take virtual tours of of, a whole city.
1: And, of course, when you're stuck waiting for a plane that may never leave, it seems like you live at the airport. So that's your house for the time being. And the airports are full of technology, some that you see and encounter and some you don't see and don't encounter directly fair to say. Yes.
5: And actually, one of those is uh, from my own agency, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. There are these things called wind profilers that are set around airports uh, all around the country, and they detect wind shear, which is kind of an important thing if you want to stay in the air. So um, it's really uh, something that's very dangerous as you come in for uh, for landing with an airplane. So it's good for the pilots and the, the control tower to know exactly where there's wind shear present, and then they can uh, they can avoid that at all costs.
1: So. Yeah, that windsock by the end of the runway won't tell you that, will it?
5: No, that just gives you general direction.
1: So, yeah. And briefly, the FLC, the Federal Laboratory Consortium, is a busy group. You've got conferences and challenge contests, and there's a lot of activity that goes on throughout the year among consortium members, isn't there?
5: Yes. So what I've been talking about mainly uh, through Lab Second Your Life is what we do in our promote committee. We um, do a lot of promotion of federal technologies, but the facilitate committee is really engaged directly with the public. Um, they put on a number of events that highlight different federal technologies. They're in essence they're matchmaking events in a lot of ways, but it's really getting core groups of people, technologists, and, uh, and folks who are interested in adopting new innovative technologies together in a room um, and really start talking to each other. And that's really the goal of the facilitate side of FLC. And we have a separate technology on our website called FLC Business that is uh, really kind of a, a full marketplace for those federal technologies that are available for uh, commercialization.
1: And you have an FLC website in general, which is pretty darn good because unlike so many federal websites, names, emails, phone numbers are actually on there for people that are interested can contact the members. That's my yes. observation. Uh,
5: what we really, yeah, exactly. What we want to do is, is definitely put people in contact with the folks at the agencies who can really help them. Uh, get to the technologies that they want as quickly as possible. So uh, the goal of the FLC is really to streamline that process of getting technologies from lab to market.
1: Derek Parks is deputy director of the Technology Partnerships Office at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and he's chairman of the Promote Committee of the Federal Lab Consortium. Thanks so much for joining me.
5: Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it.
1: We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, this group says it keeps federal unions accountable to their members. But first, the Postal Service is told to tighten up procedures for shipping urns full of human ashes. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Recently deceased individuals' remains often require transporting over long distances. In the case of cremated remains, they often go via the Postal Service and the Postal Office of Inspector General has found USPS needs to improve some of its procedures for handling them. We get more now from Audit Director Amy Jones. Ms. Jones, good to have you on.
6: Thanks for having me, Tom.
1: And what prompted this inquiry? It sounds like maybe some cremated remains, which I presume were in a kind of expensive container, got lost or spilled or what happened? What made you look at this?
6: So this report is in response to a congressional inquiry from Senator Mike Braun's office. Senior leadership asked that we assess the effectiveness of those procedures for accepting and handling cremated remains within the Postal Service Network to ensure that the remains are handled with care.
1: Got it. And these are brought to postal offices locally? I mean, how does it usually happen? And who's doing the mailing? Would it be the individuals or would it be professional handlers of cremated remains?
6: So, Tom, that's a great question. There are two ways that they come into the Postal Service Network. One is by the customers who wish to mail their cremated remains, in addition, there are companies that do ship these cremated remains out to recipients.
1: All right. And what can go wrong? What are some of the issues you uncovered?
6: So, what we found overall is that they were not in compliance with those acceptance procedures, proper labeling them and inducting them into the network. What we also found is that procedures for monitoring shipments of cremated remains within the processing facilities were not always followed. And we also found an opportunity to reduce the potential risk of missing and damaged cremated remains by enhancing packaging requirements.
1: Got it. And these then come with special requirements already extant in the postal system because of the nature of them, which are sacred to people. Let's put it that way. So it's a matter of following the procedures that are already mandated to begin with.
6: Yes. So, customers, if they are shipping their own cremated remains in their own boxes, are required to use sturdy boxes and follow the Postal Service instructions, which are outlined on their website on how to ship those cremated remains. In addition, they can bring them into local facilities who will help them package and ship those cremated remains appropriately.
1: Did anything go wrong that came to light? Because it sounds like a request from a senator probably it sounds like a constituent complained that something got lost or damaged.
6: So we did not identify any lost or damaged cremated remains. We just identified the potential that there could be if the procedures are not followed appropriately.
1: Yeah, because these do, besides the value of the fact that it's someone's beloved remains, these urns are heavy and they're expensive. So it's not like mailing something in a mailing tube, like a poster. These are substantial packages, aren't they?
6: Some of them are. So, The urns, the fully um, submitted cremated remains are heavy. There are other ways that people have shipped cremated remains. We found third-party companies who ship cremated remains of loved ones and pets through articles such as jewelry and works of art. So there are different sizes of cremated remains shipped.
1: Yeah, as a matter of fact, I still have one of our dogs, Ashes, (laughs) in a nice wooden box, as a matter of fact. What did you recommend then?
6: So overall, what we recommended and some of the recommendations that the Postal Service agreed to follow were to develop a process for communicating these procedures to employees to ensure that they are accepted appropriately. And we also recommended that they implement some guidance to verify that the cremated remains are packaged and prepared in accordance with policy. And lastly, we recommended that they ensure kit boxes for cremated remains are readily available.
1: So if someone brings in remains, the local office would have what they need to ship those things.
6: Yes. In addition, if a customer wants to order their own kit boxes before bringing them into the postal facility, um, we recommended that the Postal Service ensure that they get those timely.
1: We're speaking with Amy Jones. She's audit director in the U.S. Postal Service Office of Inspector General. And not to get too fine into the details, but are sometimes remains mailed not in the final container that they will be reposing in, but maybe in, for lack of a better word, the equivalent of a Ziploc bag, so that you really need to have them boxed well versus when they're in a steel or metal type of container or wood.
6: So the proposal service does have requirements for packaging, one of them being a sift proof container where it has to be sealed in a plastic bag, then placed within an appropriate box that's sturdy and durable. So that is their requirement to ensure that if anything were to break or any damage were to incur, that that would be concealed. Um, They also recommend that they put a valid address inside of those box just in case that box breaks and becomes damaged.
1: Sure. Now, you made six recommendations, and the Postal Service agreed with only two of them. The first two were develop and implement a process for reoccurring communications to the locals and telling them what they have to do. Also, develop and implement guidance requiring retail clerks to verify or prepared and packaged. They agreed with those recommendations to make sure people are trained and knowledgeable at the local retail level, but they disagreed with the other recommendations to update the procedures and reiterate the procedures for monitoring along the route to the final destination and so on. Why would they... I mean... I guess you can't attribute the motives to the management, but what's going on here that they disagreed with so many of the recommendations?
6: So oftentimes we see some of our recommendations not being agreed upon. So we work with the Postal Service to find a way that they can resolve these disagreements. And currently we're working through that resolution process on a way that we both agree to close out these recommendations on a schedule that the Postal Service agrees to.
1: Yeah, because like, for example, develop a plan to ensure cremated remain kit boxes are readily available to customers. There's a lot of locations where this basically every post office that has a retail window then would have to have these supplies. And maybe they're worried that they can get the supplies to every post and branch.
6: Well, that was actually one recommendation. So we had three recommendations they agreed to, and they agreed to ensure that those kit boxes are readily available. So that one is something that they do plan to do.
1: Okay. Uh, anything else we we need to know about this? Luckily, you know, that's the only way remains are mailed, anyhow. The airlines have to deal with the other way, <laughs> and that's not part of your uh, situation.
6: Well, I would like to let customers know that the Postal Service does make every attempt to deliver those cremated remains. If the Postal Service exhausts all resources to identify the sender or recipient due to mislabeling damage or invalid address, They do take care of those cremated remains and hold on to them until a resolution is due found for delivery.
1: You know, every decade or so, something happens where a letter mailed in 1937 pops up. You know, you see these stories from time to time. Let's hope that doesn't happen with a cremated remains that ends up in the system for 50 or 100 years and finds descendants of the recipient. Yes. Amy Jones is audit director of the U.S. Postal Service Office of Inspector General. As always, thanks so much.
6: Thank you so much, Tom, for having me.
1: And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, this group says it keeps federal unions accountable to their members. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
7: Hi, I'm Eric White. Join me on the Space Hour, a deep look at the commercial space industry from both the public and private sector. We discuss topics pertaining to the aerospace community with current and former members of the federal government, academics with in-depth knowledge, along with industry leaders, all of whom are paving the way to advance the U.S. space field. Listen to it on Federal News Network, on our website, federalnewsnetwork.com, or on demand anytime, wherever you get your podcasts.
3: When we need help, we turn to government. When government needs help, they turn to Federal News Network. Federal News Network, helping feds meet their mission.
1: Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. In more than 1,000 federal employee complaints filed against their unions, only 1% of those employees prevailed. That's according to research by a group called Americans for Fair Treatment. It says it's dedicated to ensuring accountability for federal employee unions. Joining me with more, the group's special counsel, David Osborne.
7: Mr. Osborne, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Tom. Yeah, Americans for Fair Treatment is a membership organization. So we work with a number of public employees throughout the country, including federal employees. And uh, most of them come to us because they have questions about their union and what the union is required to do in support of them.
1: All right. Let me ask you this question first, just before we get to the research and what you found is ordinarily we hear about complaints against agency, unfair employment practices, unfair labor practices. But you're saying that there are complaints about the unions that employees are members of. What are the nature of those types of complaints that they tend to lodge
7: Sure. I also happen to be a practicing attorney and I've helped employees litigate some of these claims in state labor boards. Before the FLRA, it's very similar. What an employee might allege against their union is that the union has refused to process a grievance and that the grievance has merit to it. I think there's a lot of traction here when an employee happens to be a non member and the union refuses to process the grievance. Another allegation is that the union has threatened an employee because they've refused to become a, a union member. Also, there might be a retaliation charge that once the employee files a ULP, that the union has threatened them. Employees cannot also allege that their union has failed to negotiate in good faith with the agency. You, often you see an agency making these allegations, but an employee can do the same thing. And another example, if there's a strike that the union has either proposed or wants to call or participate in or support a strike, and the employee doesn't want to participate or they're not allowed to strike. Yeah, that would um, be that, more at that, the state another, and
1: local level than because federal level, right. there's no strike capability statutorily, correct?
7: Right. And so I'll give you an example of a uh, a ULP charge that was successful against a union. It was a state charge in Pennsylvania. We litigated it to the hilt, and it involved a union that was going into negotiation over pension obligation. And the state entity actually provided several different options to the union. But the union hid those options from the employees when they came to the ratification meeting. This is not uncommon. The union presents basically one option during the ratification meeting, and they want to induce ratification. So they present it as if it was the only option. When some of the employees asked a question, well, what about this other thing we wanted? The union hid that information intentionally. That's a great example of an unfair labor practice charge against a union, but, but it's not the only kind.
1: All right. Let's talk about what you found from the Federal Labor Relations Authority. I guess you FOIA'd their data on complaints about unions. And principally, you got data concerning the American Federation of Government Employees, which is the biggest federal union, and the National Treasury Employees Union, which I think is the second biggest. What did you ask for? What did the data show that's going on here?
7: There are some 4,000 unfair labor practice charges every year before the FLRA. We weren't interested in all of those charges. What we were interested in is the exact scenario that we've been talking about here. An individual filing a charge against an employee organization or union. So we asked for that data from late 2015 at the time, it was even seven years at the time. So we got data from 2015 in December to 2022 in December. And the data was for charges every year that are brought by an individual against their employee union. What we got was 1,200 charges over that span of time. That's an average of about 173 charges every year. And the overwhelming majority of charges, perhaps fitting what you're talking about, these are the biggest unions, were charges filed by individuals against AFG or or the NTEU. And AFGE far outstripped NTEU. It was. Um, out of the 1,211 charges, 935 were filed against AFG and 108 were filed against NTEU. The other handful were from smaller unions.
1: We are speaking with David Osborne. He is special counsel at Americans for Fair Treatment. And then you looked at how the FLRA adjudicated those more than 1,000 complaints and what happened. What did you find?
7: Most of those charges were pretty quickly dismissed, over a majority of them. And another, say, 45 percent or so were withdrawn by the individual at some point prior to a determination. So they probably engaged at some level with their union. And for reasons we don't know from the public records, they were withdrawn. A very, very small percentage, fewer than one percent were settled and fewer than one percent were actually adjudicated all the way to an enforcement action by the FLRA.
1: That seems like a little bit of a statistical anomaly that less than 1% were adjudicated in some manner. Half went out the door before it even got to that point and nearly half were dismissed. What's going on, do you
7: think? Well, I think the real story that comes out of this is the systematic difficulty for public employees in litigating these charges. So I'm a lawyer and I've helped with some of these, but I've had to do it pro bono because most of the time, you're not going to get any damages out of this. If you do get some damages, I will have burned through that in the first hour as an attorney. So what employees are facing in this circumstance is basically going unrepresented against their public employee union, supposed to be representing them, but the allegation is that they're not. And the union, of course, has a lot of lawyers. So that's a difficult scenario for any public employee to really litigate and find success.
1: On the other hand, you could argue, just to play devil's advocate here, that 1,100 complaints over seven years, given the number of people that are represented by NTEU and AFGE, that doesn't seem like people are all that dissatisfied. And there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of employees, and over seven years, you know, a tiny, tiny percentage lodge something against the union.
7: You also have to imagine the difficulty in even having the bravery to file a charge in the first place. So who knows who even decided against filing a charge because going against your union is a really big deal. In working with employees, I've often had requests that we help them install cameras on their property or on their car. Federal employee unions are not the Teamsters of the 1960s and 70s, but the kind of intimidation that they face and social pressure that they're going to experience at work is really formidable.
1: Yeah, I was on a strike in the 1970s, and man, when the Teamsters showed up to deliver paper to the newspaper, you better get out of the way because they'll run right over a picket line (laughs) of another AFL-CIO union. That's right. That's a personal experience. One other point I wanted to ask you about is you mentioned that in some cases... The union fails to represent in an action that the employee needs to bring, and that employee is not a union member. And -hmm. there's that little anomaly in the federal space where you get covered by the union bargaining agreement even though you can opt out of paying the union. I mean, why
7: should the union bother if you don't even pay your dues? The reason is that the union's the exclusive representative. So if I'm in an employee workplace, I really don't have the choice to go it alone. I'm going to be governed by a collective bargaining agreement that was bargained by the union and the employer, basically without my participation. In fact, under union rules, I'm probably not allowed to ratify that or even ask questions about it. It's basically foisted on me. So when it comes time to litigate a grievance, I think it's only fair that the union would have to represent the employee under the rules that it has itself negotiated for that employee.
1: Got it. And so just to summarize, what's your best advice for people that feel aggrieved by a union? What should they do short of hiring a lawyer and going broke?
7: (laughs) Well, there are a couple of options. So so, um, Americans for Fair Treatment, the organization of which I'm special counsel, um, can provide a little bit more specialized guidance depending on their situation. But if it comes time to litigate against a union, there is at least one organization that provides free legal representation. It's called the Fairness Center. It's a separate organization, but we've referred a number of employees over there, and they've done some neat work that I don't think any other public interest law firm has ever done. That's free legal representation so that they can review your case and figure out if it would be a good one to bring.
1: All right. Interesting wrinkle. David Osborne is special counsel at Americans for Fair Treatment. Thanks so much for joining me.
7: Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Tom.
1: And we'll post this interview along with a link to their research at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. With a plan to hire 35,000 interns this year alone, the Biden administration means to revive the government's internship program. It's been dwindling for years. Beyond the headcount, though, the White House is pushing agencies to pay their interns, also all of them. The Office of Personnel Management wants to help, but there's a lot of work to do. After attending an OPM internship experience event this week, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman files this report.
8: The Biden administration's emphasis on early career federal hiring starts in large part with interns. And they're beginning to get a lot more attention in even the senior-most levels of government. The Office of Personnel Management, as part of a new experience program, has been offering workshops, events, and more for this year's summer cohort. OPM Deputy Director Rob Shriver spoke to interns at this week's event.
0: You
2: guys wouldn't believe how often we talk about you at the highest levels of government. All the time we talk about how can we get more interns into the federal government, how can we make sure they have a good experience, and how can we turn them into the pipeline of um, the future jobs in the federal government. This program is part of the Internship Experience Program that we've been leading at OPM, and it really is designed to help you get the most out of your federal internship experience. We want to ensure that you have professional development opportunities, access to mentors, coaching, training, and more. Your internship should be educational, rewarding, and, of course, fun.
8: And Education Secretary Miguel Cardona, the event's keynote speaker, had some words of advice for the interns, too.
4: Don't limit yourself to your current goals. Be open-minded. I would also say um, don't change your stripes. Right now, I feel like I'm making a difference. And I'm staying true to my values, my core values, and uh, what I wanted to do, which was serve, right? Serve kids. I started with 21 kids. Now they're 65 million. But I'm still serving students. Don't think... You can predict what's gonna happen 10 years from now. Work hard, stay true to yourself, continue to believe in yourself. Doors may open that you weren't even expecting um, because you were so focused on this door. There's a bigger door over here that opened and you weren't paying attention because you were so focused on this door. Yeah, that's, I think that's my fatherly
8: <laughs>
4: secretary advice.
8: Federal internships are a common path into early career public service, and they're a way for agencies to make a better pipeline to early career feds, as just 7% of the federal workforce is currently under the age 30. Many interns do have largely positive, rewarding experiences that often come with a ripple effect. Katie Keim is an intern at OPM, working on the rollout of the new Postal Service Health Benefits Program. As soon as I became a part of their team, I pretty much jumped right in, started working with some of the comments, and I actually got to help out with doing some memo drafting with the regulation, which has been awesome and has been an incredible opportunity. What I have found within my internship is I've been given a lot of projects where it's not filing, it's not, you know, the boring grunt work. It's genuinely work that is impacting people. This experience has really solidified the fact that I want to work in government after um, my undergraduate career, and I don't think that's going to change. But to make an even stronger pipeline of early career feds, it'll take more work on the front end. To add to the to-do list, the Biden administration is pushing agencies to pay all of their interns. Paid internships have existed in the federal government for decades. Agencies have several ways to offer paid positions, for example, through the Pathways program, a streamlined authority for hiring post-secondary interns, a Cyber Corps scholarship for service, and many more. Agencies can also contract with third-party internship providers that offer payment. The General Services Administration is one of many agencies that does offer some paid opportunities. Katie Kale is GSA Deputy Administrator. We want to offer you
0: opportunities to grow and advance and serve the American people. We also believe that you should be able to build your careers and get paid for the time and the talent that you bring. We have seen that unpaid internships are a barrier to hardworking, talented, and really creative individuals. So we offer paid internships to help remove barriers to equal opportunity for low-income students and first-generation professionals at the beginning of their careers. So through our internships, our ACE mentoring programs, and our Emerging Leaders programs, we are excited to have you join us. And these are ways that we can participate in the work experience, the training, the networking, and developmental opportunities designed to build technical and leadership skills while developing a broad knowledge of the agency
8: and the core uh, functions that of which you serve. But inconsistencies in paid internship opportunities have left others, like former federal intern Michelle Liang, with a more negative experience. Liang, who's now a fellow at advocacy group Pay Our Interns, called out the federal government for advertising paid internships through Pathways as a solution to achieve equitable workforce pipelines, but at the same time restricting access with terms and conditions like requiring graduate degrees. Unpaid internships are a major issue of diversity as well. It can cost $6,000 to take a three-month internship, and that's something that disproportionately impacts Black and Latino college students and is a massive barrier for low-income individuals. Carlos Vera is the founder of advocacy group Pay Our Interns.
9: According to studies, Black and Latino intern students are the least likely to do unpaid or just intern at all. This kind of goes back to the racial wealth gap, right? We know that exists. It's tenfold between white families versus other families of color. And one way of gaining wealth is like through careers, right? So when you kind of create this glass ceiling and people can't enter these sectors because they can't afford to work there, that reproduces inequality.
8: And now OPM is trying to change that narrative. Shriver says the agency has been looking at ways to revamp the regulations for the Pathways program now more than a decade old. He's looking to open the door to more applicants. OPM plans to publish a proposed rule later this summer on that expansion plan, aiming to better reflect agency needs, candidate preferences, and best practices that have evolved since the regulations were first developed. Right now, the Pathways program is focused mainly on recruiting four-year college graduates, but they're looking to expand that to include trade schools and community colleges. Still, with all that red tape, Carlos Vera, who's the founder of Pay Our Interns, is trying to get agencies to make an even bigger push.
9: You know, when we've reached out to agencies around this issue, they're like, well, we have Pathways and that's paid. And look, that's awesome. But Pathways can't be the only way you get into an agency. You get your foot in the door. Additionally, it's quite complicated sometimes. You know, it's not something that's an easy process. And what we've noticed is while Pathways is paid, there are all these other student volunteership programs that somewhat feels like the Wild West and those are all unpaid. And they're not always collecting the best data, they're not sending that to OPM. And that is the area that like, we want OPM and other um, agencies that are related to this to be working on it."
8: Long months of advocacy from Vera and other payer intern staff ultimately helped lead to the White House and the State Department starting to offer paid internships internally. In both instances, Vera said Congress had to authorize not just funding, but also the specific language to be able to pay those interns. Now the group is aiming to broaden those successes government-wide. Vera explained more.
9: We have talked to certain agencies, you know, tell us like, look, we actually have funds to pay interns in these student volunteer programs, but we legally cannot. So they have to like do like MOUs with universities, which could take months. They give the money to universities and the universities give the money to students. And I'm just like, kind of like, we're in a time where we need more young talent than ever. Why are we creating these additional hurdles? Particularly since the president did state in his directive that he wanted 35,000 federal interns for 2023. And I mean, I don't know if they're going to hit that target, to be very honest with you.
8: And while there may be a long road ahead to diversifying internship opportunities, current federal interns said their experiences have been on the whole positive, and they had some recommendations on how to improve early career recruitment. Jamie Foyerman is an intern in OPM's Office of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Accessibility. I would definitely say it's important to emphasize that not all government work is like strictly going to be political work. There's so many different fields, you know, I've talked to interns who never were considering a federal position and this just happens to be adjacent to what kind of career path they want and they're happening to do, happening to do that work in government and Even though, you know, I personally love doing government work, I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, not everybody who is my age necessarily wants to do political work and they associate the government with political work. So just emphasizing the diversity of fields that government has, agencies are also part of the heart of government. And, you know, people need to acknowledge that, too. And, you know, getting to hear about that is important. Drew Friedman, Federal News Network.
1: Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with FederalNewsNetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.